humans. Hello, 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 humans of Minnesota, of the Twin Cities, of the world. This is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio, with you once again to talk about idealism and idealists and trying to change the world one one listener at a time. How are you all? Happy Monday. Happy Monday in September. Yep. Everyone's back to school now. Everyone's focused on the new school year. Parents, you know, uh, no longer do we ever measure years by um, the beginning of the year. Now we measure years around uh, school time when kids go back to school. Now that's how we measure years. And that includes me because my new year begins really pretty much right now because I'm back on the speaking circuit uh, coming up this month uh, alone. In September, I will be in Idaho next week. I'll be in Massachusetts the week after that, and then Steamboat Springs, Colorado the week after that. And today's show uh, is... uh, is going to be about enslavement of humans, okay? Both historical and modern day. I know, what a wonderful topic. But you know what? We're just past the 400th anniversary. Um, It's not a good anniversary of the first enslaved Africans being brought to the United States. That happened in in, uh, August of of 1619. And um, while I've talked about enslavement of humans a little bit, uh, I, I really want to devote this show to it. So, among other things, we will speak to uh, Marshall Tannock, a Minneapolis lawyer who's chronic, chronicled um, the existence of slaved humans in Minnesota. Uh, but let me begin by talking about Cujo Lewis, the second-to-last living enslaved African smuggled into the United States. Uh, longtime listeners may recall that I briefly mentioned Cujo Lewis when I chronicled Um, The writer, Zora Neale Hurston, herself the granddaughter of two people who had been enslaved. I chronicled her back in May of 2018. Uh, Zora had written extensively about Cujo Lewis. I mentioned him during the course of speaking about Zora. Um, In 1808—now, you may remember from your history books that with the Constitution and many of those people who signed on to the Declaration of Independence— um, uh, were slave um, enslavers themselves, slaveholders, okay? And when the Constitution was created and then ratified, it provided that slavery, um, enslaved humans could be imported into the United States until 1808. And after that, it became illegal. Uh, that did not mean that enslaved humans were not brought to the U.S. They were just simply smuggled into the U.S. Um, And, of course, uh, enslaved people in the U.S., uh, you know, continued to um, uh, create families under critically horrible conditions. And by the time the Civil War arose, there were somewhere in the vicinity of about 5 million enslaved humans in the United States. In 1860, so this is when smuggling of enslaved humans from Africa was illegal. In 1860, Cujo Lewis was abducted from his village in West Africa. He and along with 115 other abducted Africans were put on board the ship Clotilda, C-L-O-T-I-L-D-A, Clotilda, and brought to Mobile, Alabama and smuggled to shore. 
The Clotilda itself was then scuttled afterwards because it was a highly illegal proposition. Um, and that boat uh, was later rediscovered this year um, in the mud outside of uh, in, uh, in Mobile Bay, I believe. Cujo uh, Lewis was purchased by a steamship owner who enslaved Cujo as a deckhand. After the Civil War ended, the Clotilda captives tried to raise money to return to their homeland in Western Africa. When that was unsuccessful, Cujo purchased two acres of land north of Mobile, Alabama, and that land became known as Africatown, an independent black community where other Clotilda survivors lived and spoke their own language among themselves. Cujo married another Clotilda survivor, Abiel, and that together they had five sons and a daughter. Each child was given an African name in addition to an American name. One of Cujo's sons was fatally shot by a sheriff's deputy in 1902. Now, remember, by 1902, Jim Crow was alive and thriving in the Deep South. One can imagine only can only imagine the circumstances under which Cujo's son was shot fatally by a sheriff's deputy in 1902. Eventually, Cujo became a storyteller and a historian. Two of his animal tell, tales from life in Africa were, abs- were actually published in 1927 of, with the help of a, of a white-color writer. Cujo Lewis died in July of 1935. And what I'd like to do is just focus on that date, 1935. I know that some listeners were born before then. Some listening to my voice right now were born before 1935. And I'd like you to think about how your life, the beginning of your life, overlapped with the tail end of Cujo Lewis's life. There's a connection there. That there were living people who were living enslaved humans who were still living at the time that you were born. It turns out, I mean, I was born uh, only 21 years after Cujo Lewis died. And even that shocks me that my birth year would be so close in time to the, the life of an enslaved African here in America. So when people talk about slavery having ended in 1865, and this is a much bigger conversation in a whole lot of other ways, when people say that slavery and, um, and uh, marginalization of black-colored humans ended in 1865 with the end of the Civil War, it really, se- it really totally disregards the fact that after the Civil War, there were millions, millions of black-colored humans and uh, other colors as well because... Um, Uh, All kinds of people were enslaved in the United States, other than the white color, of course. But that for decades after the Civil War, these folks lived here. They lived with the trauma of having been enslaved. Cujo Lewis and his um, 
fellow Clotilda survivors living in Africatown and in other parts of the South endured the trauma of what it meant to be taken from your home, to be taken from your continent, and displaced to a foreign land where you were brought in chains, where you were the subject to the whims of another human who could literally decide whether you lived or died, whether you ate or not, whether you worked or slept. And these folks were just left to fend for themselves to go forward in life after slavery ended. Can you imagine the trauma? Can you imagine how it must have felt to finally get freedom? But then what, what would they do with it? I mean, obviously, Cujo and his colleagues wanted to return to Africa, but financially they couldn't swing it. I mean, that says something right there. And so they ended up being stuck in a land that they never wanted to ever be a part of, a place where they never wanted to, to be. This is among the legacies of enslaving humans. It was so wrong then. And in a little bit in this show, I'm going to talk about how people continue to be enslaved in 2019 in a variety of ways. So think about that. As you go forward, will you please? Um, this place we call America... It has a long history that we need to start talking about, that we need to start thinking about. When we come back from our break, I'm going to speak with Marshall Tannock, a Minnesota Minneapolis lawyer who has chronicled the presence of um, enslaved people in Minnesota, this place that we would never have thought that enslaved humans would ever be. If you like what you're listening to, uh, follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug. Visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail because I would love to hear from you. We'll be back in a second. Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. At Better Futures Minnesota, we believe everyone deserves a fair shot. 
We believe in personal redemption and second chances, and that those who are dedicated to change and hard work should have the opportunity to achieve success and make a positive impact in the community. The men we embrace and serve have made mistakes, but they aren't bad people. We work with men who take responsibility for their past and are committed to doing better, who work to create a better life for themselves, their family, and the community. Learn more at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. Back on AM 950, Ellie Krug here, uh, Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, please read up about Cujo Lewis. I think that it would be very worthwhile a uh, part of your time. And now for the big interview, I've got a special guest, Attorney Marshall Tannock from Minneapolis, is here on the line, going to talk with us uh, uh, for a little bit about an article that appeared on August 23rd in the in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. The title of the article is Slavery Made Its Mark Here in Minnesota, Too. Marshall, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Thank you. I'm happy to be on with you. I listen to the program all the time on Monday morning. Oh, thank you so very much. Well, Marshall, um, uh, I uh, wanted to talk with you about this piece as soon as I saw it. Uh, and, um, you know, how did it—well, uh, first of all, can you, can you give us a little bit of synopsis of what you wrote in the, in the strip? And then I want to talk with you about um, a little bit about Dred Scott. Go ahead. Well, there were several jumping-off points for the article, Ellie. Um, this um, week, uh, around the nation, uh, there's been commemorations of the 400th anniversary of the first slaves being brought to Jamestown in what later became Virginia. Uh, Minneapolis uh, and other communities around the country have sponsored a program known as Resiliency Week, in which uh, programs have been conducted largely of an educational nature, uh, discussing uh, the history of slavery and, more significantly, the consequences of slavery as they currently exist in our society. And um, that occurred last week. It was called Resiliency Week here in Minneapolis and around the country, for that matter. A third event that uh, was also happening is the 100th 200th, I'm sorry, 200th anniversary of the beginning of Fort Snelling, which was originally established in 1819 at its current site near the airport in Bloomington. The uh, the coalescence of all three of those events prompted me to uh, write an article uh, about uh, the history of slavery in Minnesota. Uh, we often think of Minnesota as being a, an anti-slavery uh, free state, and it indeed was, but there is a long uh, and not-so-glorious history about uh, slavery in Minnesota, highlighted by the fact that the very famous Dred Scott case arose on Minnesota soil at Fort Snelling. Okay, and so, well, first, let's uh, before we get to Dred Scott, let's just talk about the fact that Minnesota... Um, as a territory, was considered a free territory. And then once it uh, achieved its statehood in, uh, what was it, uh, 1858, it was considered a free state. And the way the landscape was was set was that above the Mason-Dixon line, in theory, uh, states would be free states, and then below that would be slave, um, in, um, enslaved human states, right? 
Correct. There are a number of laws that affected that. One was the, actually, there were two uh, uh, laws known as the Northwest Ordinance. That goes back to post-revolutionary days, back in the 1780s, when the territory that later became Minnesota and Wisconsin and the upper Midwest was set aside as free, non-slave territory. But the ex- the existence of that free, non-slave territory was um, confirmed in what was known as the Missouri Compromise of 1820, uh, federal legislation that admitted Missouri, uh, this was during the time when new states were being developed and admitted both on the, uh, uh, in the West and in some cases uh, in, the, in the Northeast. And uh, as part of the admission of Missouri into the Union in 1820, the uh, comp- Missouri Compromise provided that Maine would also be admitted as a free state, Missouri as as a slave state, and the boundary was drawn that you properly, uh, correctly indicated was essentially the Mason-Dixon line, where slavery would not be allowed to exist essentially north of the Mason-Dixon line, which is basically the uh, northern edge of Missouri. So all any territory above uh, a line that essentially tr- uh, goes through the upper end of Missouri would be considered free and anything below that could be considered slave territory as a result of this 1820 compromise, which was one of many compromises that the nation struggled with during those years uh, leading up to the Civil War, dealing with the slavery-related issues. And, um, but that did not mean that enslavers didn't come to northern states and bring their enslaved humans with them, particularly in Minnesota. And I just thought it was fascinating that you talked about that. And can you uh, let the audience know what your research revealed? Well, you're correct about that. Incidentally, at that time, from the mid in the mid nineteenth uh, century, the 1830s through 1860 period, slavery was lawful and existed in the states of the Old South, which ultimately became the Confederacy. Some border states, which con- continue to have slavery even during the Civil War, Missouri, Kentucky, and um, and Maryland, among others. But slavery was also legal in many northern states, although by the 1830s and 40s, states passed laws uh, abolishing slavery. But at least in through the mid part of the 19th century, slavery was legal in states uh, like Rhode Island, New York, and some other states allowed slavery uh, until they passed laws abolishing slavery. But in this territory, the upper Midwest, slavery was, um, was uh, prohibited. In fact, the Second Amendment to the Minnesota Constitution, uh, the Second Amendment to the Minnesota Constitution provides that, that slavery is prohibited in the, in the state of Minnesota as a condition to it becoming a state in 1858. And interestingly, the same, the identical language in the Minnesota State Constitution barring prohibiting slavery was the same language that was used at, for the 13th Amendment to the federal constitution barring slavery in the United States after the Civil War. That's one of the Civil War amendments, and they borrowed or used or plagiarized the same language as in the Minnesota Constitution about a decade earlier. But to answer your question, um, Minnesota was a relatively popular in the 1850s uh, vacation area for Southerners, uh, wealthy Southerners coming up north, they would come up on paddle boats or steamships up the up the Mississippi, and they'd vacation here to get away from the oppressive heat in the South, and they would vacation in Minnesota, basically around St. Anthony Falls. 
but they brought a form of oppression with them. They would bring their slaves, not their whole, not all their slaves, not their field slaves, and but they would bring their domestic servants and domestic slaves with them to service them while they were up here in Minnesota enjoying our uh, our uh, cooler, although mosquito-driven uh, summers. And it was, uh, and there would be anywhere from several thousand to more Southerners, again mainly wealthy Southerners, here in Minnesota primarily in and around the Minneapolis area, St. Anthony Falls area, living here with their slaves. It was unlawful to have slavery in Minnesota, but those slaves were the property of people who lived in the South where slavery was legal, and that is the predicate for the Dred Scott case. Whether uh, individuals who maintain slaves in places where where slavery is legal can bring them into other areas where slavery is not legal. Right. Well, and we're back to the idea that humans were chattel, that, um, you know, slaveholders were, um, were taxed um, for having um, enslaved humans on their property, just like they were taxed for having cattle and lives, other livestock and, and, and even uh, some equipment. And so, all right, Dred Scott, um, he and uh, his wife enslaved um, were the property, and I, I'm just saying that, simply because that was the phrase used back then, of, a, of a, an army surgeon who came to Fort Snelling um, to, to, because he was posted in Fort Snelling, and he brought uh, Dred Scott, his wife, and, and they may have had a couple of children at that time, and Dred Scott and his wife and his children lived um, at, Fort, at Fort Snelling. Is that right? Yes, I think the children were born later, but he and his wife, named Harriet, lived uh, at Fort Snelling. They lived in the basement of the infirmary. The doctor worked in the infirmary, and they, uh, Dred Scott and his wife Harriet lived in the basement of the infirmary, a building that still stands on the uh, Fort Snelling premises. They lived there from 1836 to 1838. Incidentally, back in those days, it was called the Wisconsin Territory, but it's where Fort Snelling currently is. It's today's Minnesota, but back then it was known as the Wisconsin Territory. He lived there for two, a little over two years, from 1836 to 1838, with his wife. And um, ultimately, the, uh, the the doctor was re, uh, reposted to a different part of the country. And and uh, he uh, actually, uh, he, he, he was transferred back to another individual. That individual ended up moving down to Missouri. So Scott was yep. re, was still a slave, but now he was li- and he's living in Missouri. And then he started a lawsuit in Missouri, claiming that he should be a free man, and his wife should be free as well, because they lived for a while in free territory, the Wisconsin Territory, and that became the basis for the Dred Scott case starting in the late 1840s, and it wound its way through the state and federal court system in Missouri for 10 years until it finally reached the Supreme Court in late 1856. And when it arrived at the Supreme Court, of course, the country is still grappling with uh, this, uh, uh, with slavery. Um, and the idea was, if I read right about history, was that if the Supreme Court could definitively decide the issue, that would put the issue to rest for the country. Do I have that many right? People, yes, many people thought that. Uh, the, the, the battles over slavery, which were being fought, uh, not on the battlefield yet, although there were some battles, like John Brown, but uh, the, the, the controversy, the debates, the uh, calumny over slavery that was going on in the country uh, kind of came to a halt while the Dred Scott case was being litigated before the Supreme Court, and there was a general 
feeling, a general consensus, that the Supreme Court will somehow resolve the issue and that will bring finality to the slave issue. At least that was what many people thought and some hoped. Um, The issue in the Dred Scott case was, there were several issues, but the main issue was whether uh, individuals with slaves could take them as property into non-slave areas. Now, it had a great, deal of, great, a great deal of significance, not just for Southerners vacationing up in Minnesota during the summer, but it had, the, 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 it had to do with the issue of whether the new states that were being formed, the territories and states in, in the West and the, in the Northwest, would be open to slavery, and even the Southwest, too, for that matter. So the issue was very significant because it basically uh, would, it turned on whether slavery could expand beyond the southern slavery states. So the issue was uh, paramount in terms of whether slavery would be allowed to uh, exist and um, grow beyond the states where it already existed. And Marsha, we only have about a minute and a half, um, but in the end, what the, the Supreme Court didn't even get to that decision because in the end, the Supreme Court essentially said that black-colored humans, that enslaved humans, were not, not entitled to the rights of American citizens of any kind, um, right? That's correct. The court, the court threw out Dred Scott's case essentially on a technical grounds of lack of legal standing. Right. Legal standing means that he could, was not eligible to sue because they said he's not a citizen and only citizens can use the courts. And the reason he wasn't a citizen is because he was property. And the court said all slaves, all black people are, uh, are not citizens and slaves are property and they can't sue. And the court went on to use in a famous phrase uh, uttered by the Chief Justice that uh, black, mi- black men uh, do not have any rights that a white person is bound to respect. In other words, they were not only second-class citizens, they were non-citizens, and they were treated just like property or chattel. That led to Abraham Lincoln re-entering politics and was really the major precipitant of the Civil War. Obviously, there were a number of other factors, right. but once that re- the dam really burst with that decision in 1857 and made civil war inevitable. Well, Marshall, um, we've run out of time, and I've really, really enjoyed talking with you about this. I, I, you, are, you are fascinating. You are a wealth of historical information, and maybe sometime I'll have you back on the show, talk about some other things relative, relevant to history and civil rights as it relates to Minnesota. Um, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for being on LE 2.0 Radio and being a listener. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, listeners, we've been speaking to uh, Marshall Tenick, a Minnesota lawyer who recently wrote an article in the, in the uh, Star Tribune uh, about uh, slavery making its mark in Minnesota. When we come back from our break, I'll end up uh, going to my next block where I'm going to talk about modern-day enslavement of humans. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. 
Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. At Better Futures Minnesota, we transform the lives of men and support Minnesota's environment by working towards zero waste. Our approach reaffirms each man's dignity and supports self-sufficiency. Better Futures Minnesota is a work training model. Through our reuse, retail warehouse, and supervised work crews with specialized in residential and commercial building deconstruction, property maintenance, appliance recycling, and janitorial services, we demonstrate ways to employ hire-to-employ men on a pathway to independence. Hire our work crews at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. And we're back on AM 950, listening to me, Ellie Krug, uh, Marshall Tannock. Thank God. I mean, I, I, you know, he's a lawyer. He's got plenty of uh, things to do, and he, he wants to be an historian as well. And thank goodness he is, because he, I, I, he certainly educated me. Hopefully he educated you. All right, so we have been talking so far in the show about historical enslavement of humans. I now want to talk about modern-day enslavement. And um, because we, I, my goal is to always make this show as relevant as possible. Now, um, many of you know uh, that humans continue to be enslaved in 2019 in a variety of ways, forced human bondage by uh, rebels um, and some rogue nations like North Korea, um, utilized forced labor, forced labor, that is slavery, sex, you know, sex trafficking of minors and of women um, is also another form of enslavement. And then uh, child labor, forced child labor um, um, is also a form of enslavement in modern day. Another form of enslavement relates to the underpayment of workers who have few options. Migrants or uneducated individuals, lower educated individuals are where people are grossly taken advantage of. And in that regard, I want to highlight an August 31, 2017 Los Angeles Times story titled, quote, behind a $13 shirt, comma, a $6 an hour worker, unquote. This is a piece written by Natalie uh, Kitroff, K-I-T-R-O-E-F-F, and Victoria Kim. And it follows in part the story of Norma uh, Ujoa, uh, from the Philippines, she was a server, a, a sewer in a garment factory outside of Los Angeles, and she was paid by garment sewn. So she was paid piecemeal. Um, she reported, uh, well, what uh, Norma Ujoa did is she would pin Forever Twenty One tags on shirts, and she would swipe or cut loose threads. On a good day, she would do seven hundred shirts. That would amount because she got paid piecemeal, paid by the shirt, you know, like, I don't know, three cents a shirt or whatever, that would amount to $6 an hour that she would make, well below the $15 an hour required by um, Los Angeles minimum 
uh, wage law. Now, uh, that, that story in the LA Times goes on to write, and I'm going to quote from the story, quote, the U.S. Department of Labor investigated 77 Los Angeles Gartman factories from April through July of 2016 and found that workers were paid as little as $4 and an average of $7 an hour for 10-hour days spent sewing clothes for Forever 21, Ross Dress for Less, and TJ Maxx. One worker in West Covina made as little as $3.42 per hour during three weeks of sewing TJ Maxx clothing, according to the Department of Labor, unquote. Two of those companies I just mentioned, Forever 21 and TJ Maxx, are, are Twin Cities metro retailers. Um, on, and I will tell you, I have bought clothes from both. Both of those companies escaped liability in California for the low-wage payment because they claim they are only retailers and not manufacturers. So they operate through a, a variety of contracts with, with small companies that are doing the sewing, putting goods together. And so, and so far, the claim that they're not manufacturers held, has held, and they've not been responsible for back-wage claims um, of, of workers in the garment industry in, in California. All of this got me to thinking and investigating. And yes, we love getting our bargains, but who is paying the price for that? And um, how, how is it impacting the lives of those involved making those products when those prices are so low? After all, we go to the supermarkets more and more and, and are demanding ethical treatment of animals like cage-free chickens and eggs, pork that's not been part of an industrialized process. We want food that's antibiotics-free. Yes, some of that is also about us being healthy, but also some of it is about how are we treating the animals. So think about it. How are we treating the people that are making your clothing and other products? So I investigated whether there's a way to determine um, in a particular clothing or footwear, whether a particular clothing or footwear manufacturer is ethical. Um, you know, whether it's ensuring that the people who work on its products, help manufacture its products are being treated fairly. I discovered an organization named Know the Chain that actually rates organizations on their efforts to eradicate forced labor from their supply chains. So if you go to their website, um, the website is knowthechain.org, knowthechain, K-N-O-W-T-H-E, chain, C-H-A-I-N.org, you will see that how they rate 43 companies in the garment business and uh, the shoe wear business on a scale of 0 to 100 relative to efficacy. There are big names on the chart that they have. Um, and, and the chart rates them from that that's most eth ethical um, and ethical um, down to the lowest that, that, according to the criteria they use, is least ethical. So it rates companies like Adidas and Luluma, Lululemon and Gap all rate high on the Know the Chain um, chart. Companies like Amazon, which has, um, has a... Um, a, a facility here in the Twin Cities, Michael Kors, which is a big name, you know, big uh, priced um, clothing, and Foot Locker, where you know that's the people in the in the striped uh, shirts at the mall, um, and Skirchers, uh, the shoe people, they all rated 
very much lower than Adidas and Lululemon and Gap. But but uh, uh, know the chain also rates um, food and beverage manufacturers um, as well as um, technology manufacturers. So as they rate food and beverage manufacturers, they rate very high Unilever, Kellogg, and Coca-Cola. Lowest on their rating was Tyson Foods, Hormel, Monster Beverage, the energy drink people, was also rated very low. Now, all of this is about um, how companies go to pains, go to lengths to determine that forced labor is not being used um, or unethical uh, labor practices aren't being employed in the manufacture of their products. Now, it takes a lot of work to do that. You've got to, first of all, be aware that you need to do that. Secondly, you've got to create, be intentional about it. You've got to create a team that actually goes out in the field, um, conducts audits, uh, conducts surprise investigation or ex- in, in pr- surprise inspections, and goes and figures out whether or not um, the suppliers are treating its people uh, properly and ethically. And whether, you know, I mean, you know, uh, being made over in Thailand or over in in uh, Asia, whether or not they're using children and paying them poorly uh, to make their products. I mean, this. while this is an issue today, I predict that this is going to be a huge issue coming forward, particularly if uh, the next election cycle goes Democrat rather than Republican. Um, with, if it goes Republican, the issue will be put off, but it's not going to be put off forever. <clears throat> so um, I highly recommend that you go check out Know the Chain website and start thinking about this. There's also an article that I would recommend that you read, and that article is uh, by a woman named uh, um, Kristen Schulz, S-C-H-U-L-Z. Um, she's, on, she's got a piece on End Slavery Now titled Why We Can't Stay Forever 21, okay? Um, and how she loves to, she did love to shop at Forever 21, um, but she goes on to write about, for, now this is that Forever 21, they've got all those great prices, okay? And here's what she writes about Forever 21. Um, she is citing, uh, I'm not certain who she cites, but she's citing, quote, uh, business, cider, b- business Insider, quote, the International Labor Rights Forum called out Forever 21 for not joining retailers like Gap Inc., Levi Strauss, American Eagle Outfitters, and other companies in making a commitment not to buy cotton from Uzbekistan factories where alleged forced labor takes place. Do I want to be wearing clothing that has been made by child laborers? Absolutely not. And I can't claim ignorance anymore, unquote. So think about it as you make your purchase decisions. Yeah, you got that bargain, but who paid the price for it really? Think about it. Okay, when we come back from the break, we'll do my C block um, where I'm going to talk about how I'm learning things in this sector, hopefully like I'm helping you to learn things. Thanks so very much. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. Better Futures Minnesota is a social enterprise which helps men achieve self-sufficiency and a better future for themselves and their communities. 
We need your help. By donating time or funds to our cause, you can support us and promote a healthier environment. By hiring our deconstruction crews for your next residential or commercial project and shopping or donating building materials or appliances to our reuse retail warehouse, you are supporting Better Futures Minnesota and your community. Please visit BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn more. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. We're back on AM 950. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. Well, I'll tell you, I you know, I don't know how you're feeling about this entire show being uh, dedicated to talking about the enslavement of other humans, but you know what? I am a catalyst. I am an idealist. You all know that because you've been listening to me, hopefully, for a while. Uh, I am somebody to hear make you think, okay? I am. I'm, and, and, and think about things that you don't ordinarily think about. So we're at my C block right now, and um, due to some of the other segments' length, uh, this is a little compressed. So here we go. You've heard me use the phrase throughout this show, enslaved Africans or enslaved humans. Um, And frankly, those are newer phrases for me. You know that um, I train and speak on human inclusivity across North America. I'm a so-called expert... (laughs) (laughs) And often I'm sought out for articles and interviews. I mean, that is true. I mean, supposedly, you know, I know um, everything there is to know about diversity and inclusion and all of those related, all the topics related to it. I mean, supposedly I'm that person, but that's not true. Um, Actually, I'm always learning. I mean, I, I, you know. I do this show. I cannot tell you it takes for me to do an hour show. It's somewhere between four and six hours of preparation. You know, I have a busy schedule. I am an army of one on many fronts, okay? And so at times it's quite a hassle for me to prepare. But you know what? Every time I prepare, I learn. I mean, earlier we talked about Cujo Lewis. I mean, I did not know. Um, all that much about Cujo Lewis. And we, in the segment just before this, you know, we talked about, um, you know, uh, knowing um, how goods are made and how um, they impact uh, potentially um, the enslavement of other humans. I didn't know anything about that. So, uh, you know, so I'm always learning. So that was the case last week when I presented um, on white fragility to an audience. 
And actually, uh, it was the beginning of uh, my talk on white fragility. I, I mean, it's the first time I had presented on it. So um, there's always all kinds of bugs that you have to work out with talks. But, um, and, you know, white fragility is about how white color humans have a difficult time talking about skin color white privilege and racism. I mean, it just, white fragility is white colored people. You start bringing those topics up and they start getting really nervous and really shaky. And the very first thing they want to do is they want to tell you, I'm not a racist. And they want to change the whole conversation and convince you about how they don't discriminate, about how they don't have a prejudicial views. Okay. And then you never even get to the topic of how America has been so unfair to people on the basis of their skin color. That's enough about that. But part of Part of that talk that I gave last week was about um, recognizing key historical facts about slavery. And I repeatedly used the word slaves while I was doing that talk. I did. The talk was well-received, I can tell you that. I mean, I had people come up to me afterwards say, Ellie, this was really made us really think. Thank you for doing this. And by the way, because I'm a white-color person, there are things that I can say in that talk that a person of other color would not be able to say. Concepts and ideas that I put forward in that talk are well received, were well-received. If a person of color other than white had said the same, very same thing, they would not be as well-received. I guarantee you that. So anyway, so the talk was well-received, but afterwards I got an email from somebody who is not of black color who emailed me uh, and in a very kind and compassionate way asked that I consider using the phrase enslaved Africans or enslaved humans in lieu of the word slave. As I said, the email was kind, it was compassionate. And frankly, I really, really, really appreciated the suggestion and that person's perspective. Oh, thank you so very much. And thus, um, now as I'm going forward, as I'm talking about slavery, I am doing my best to incorporate the phrase enslaved Africans or enslaved humans instead of using simply the word slave. I think that it, I think that it is so much more appropriate and I think it, make, it drives home more quickly and more vividly what slavery is all about because it is about enslaving someone who formerly or by birth should have the right to be free. So, um, my goal is to never be uh, too proud or too egotistical to learn. There you go. All right. Well, I hope that you've enjoyed this show. Um, I hope that it hasn't been too much, but you know what? We've got to be uncomfortable in order to change the landscape. Sorry, we do. So, I need to give a big shout out to our show that I recommended her because she does incredibly good work. I just saw her last month. Oh, my goodness. Um, and also our other sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota. Um, if you'd been listening uh, at the end of August, in, in August, you knew that I spoke with Dr. Adams again from uh, Better Futures Minnesota about the incredible work they are doing in helping people who are formerly incarcerated. So please support them. A big shout out to my uh, producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you are the best. You know that. I say that every time. And a big thanks to you, my listeners. Thank you for supporting me. I'm hearing from some of you, and, you, and you, you seem to really like this show. You seem to like my approach. So thank you so very much. If you know of anyone that'd like to sponsor the show, please, 
please send them my way because we need sponsors. That is for sure. And if you like me, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. And please follow me on Twitter. The handle is at elliekrug. I'll be back next week with another show and another way of making you think. Take care and be good to each other. Bye-bye.